Thanks everyone for uh, joining us for this um, event to talk about what's happened in Malaysia actually in only the last couple of weeks. Clive, maybe you might want to tell us again, what is this historic moment about and really uh, how do we get here? First of all, hello everybody. Very briefly, what happened very much in Malaysia was the collapse, the implosion of the order that suddenly came into being on the 9th of May 2018. The first independence dispensation collapsed in 1969 and a new dispensation was created in 1969 to reconstitute and refound Malaysia on a new basis. That previous order collapsed in what were called race riots, but they were not race riots, it was a regime crisis. But because it was seen as race riots, they said it was a problem of social exclusion, need to include Malays, we will have an NEP. NEP was instituted for 20 years. A strong Malay-headed state was needed to drive NEP forward. But immediately, the question arose, after NEP what? And by the time the 20 years were up, a shift had occurred in which the NEP was not the objective to be driven by a strong Malay state. Instead, the objective had become a strong state in Malay hands, and the NEP had become the rationale and the justification for its continuing existence. The period after NEP 1990 was the afterlife of NEP, while Dr. Mahathir, Prime Minister 1.0, was in power. Then there was this 15-year gap between Mahathir Mark I and Mahathir Mark II, which was the Badawi years and then the Najib decade. And very briefly, the Badawi years saw the development on the basis of Abdullah Ahmad's Ketuanan Malayu doctrine and unveiled in 1986. So Ketuanan Malayu go then after a latency period, an infancy, into three phases. First, it served during the Badawi years as the rhetoric for an inter-party factional struggle within UMNO. After 2008, it became official UMNO doctrine pushed forward through the instrumentalities of the state. And after 2013, GE 13, it became the official state project, the major project, to bed down to entrench Ketuanan Malayu in perpetuity. But the attempt to do so was inherently flawed. It undermined the whole basis of the BN governing formula, which is how that formula collapsed in 2018. An alternative emerged unprepared to govern. Uh, it held on for two years and finally imploded. And that's how we got to where we are today. Thanks, Clive. That's a pretty good summary. In some ways, uh, runs a bit counter to uh, Jin Tong's uh, point. Uh, he's made quite successfully, I think, in the last several days on uh, Malaysian TV and online, that maybe there is also a big rural-urban electoral divide that transcends the racialized politics. Um, is that something that you could help explain a bit further, Chintong? Yeah, uh, for example, in Johor, we were able to make huge gains in Johor from uh, winning one seat in 2008 and five seats in 2013, and eventually winning 18 seats in the 2018 election out of 26 parliamentary seats uh, in Johor, mainly because of urban Malaysians coming back to work in Johor. The point is that most of the constituencies are rural, uh, in which UMNO and its allies are very strong uh, with organizing skills and 
infrastructure. But at the same time, most Malaysians are living in urban areas, at least in the peninsula. So for instance, overall population, we have 78% Malaysian living in urban areas, and we have about 70% Malays living in urban areas. I think urban doesn't change, doesn't necessarily change someone's political outlook, but urban change the way one communicates. So those in the rural area are susceptible or somehow influenced by a local pattern-client relationship. Uh, they are grateful to what AMNO has done for them. But it, do it doesn't have any meaning to someone who stay in urban areas because they are in the national WhatsApp conversation and they follow the, the national WhatsApp conversation. And in the last election, the national WhatsApp conversation was anti-Najib, anti-Rosma. So they went home to vote against Najib, to vote against Rosma. But was it as simple as that, that it was GE14, the historic GE14 that, you know, saw this end, uh, was really just a rejection of a prime minister, his tainted little cartel maybe, but not really of the party or the, the greater structure. Uh, Ross, you, you've written about this uh, in a big journal article and... Um, it would be good to hear from you about how you've actually tried to map out and explain this moment. Oh, yeah, I definitely uh, agree with Chintong there on the role of WhatsApp and new technologies in, um, in, in shaping the G14 election result. It's actually open access and it's available in the Journal of Current Southeast Asian Affairs. So if anybody would like to read in more detail about the role of WhatsApp and new technologies in the election, uh, by all means, read that. I guess, though, that in this current change of, of government, that really we're talking more about an elite coup. And, you know, opinion polls were down for the Pakistan Harapan government, no matter whether it was Chinese, Malay, Indian, you know, which, which ethnicity is measured, or whether it's rural and urban, there was increasing dissatisfaction about the way in which the government was running. So in many ways, it didn't matter the rural-urban Malay divide, I think, in, in the recent coup, but maybe others uh, would disagree about that. Is that something you would agree with, Clive? Look, I agree largely with, with what both what uh, Tong and with Ross said. What they've both indicated are components or aspects of the situation. I was trying to talk about the larger context and the evolution of the context in which the recent crisis and putsch occurred and within which we had this coup and within which dissatisfactions first of all emerged against Barisan Nacional and then disappointments arose about the failure of Pakatan Harapan to deliver what had been hoped of it. I was trying to talk about the long-term shape of Malaysian politics, which is after Malaysia Mark I collapsed in 1969, Malaysia Mark II went from 1969-70 until 2018. In the end, within that dispensation, the BN formula worked. It showed that the electoral system could deliver not only a winner, but the right winner. But the system had to be so rigged and fudged and finessed, it could deliver winners, but without delivering legitimacy to the winners. And that led to the whole, against the Ketuanan Malayu state, or the Ketuanan Malayu state that was coming into being, there emerged this great civil society, citizen activism mobilization of Verse. And what happened in 2018, I believe, was 
it was certainly came out of the 1999 Reformasi, but more than more particularly, I think it was the culmination of that birthday mobilization, which saw the corruption and the despoliation of the electoral system and challenging that as the key to Malaysian democratization. The PH government came out of that. It had the savvy to win the election with a bit of help from um, its friends and not such good friends as Dr. Mahathir, but it didn't have the savvy and the strength and the strategic capacities to hold on to power and to deliver what people had hoped of it. Now, within that context, I would agree entirely with what both Ross and uh, Chintong said. One thing that comes across, though, Chintong, and uh, I, I found it you know, fascinating in your arguments so far, I still think your guarded optimism about the rise and rise of this big urban, for want of a better description, middle class that is across the racialized categories, and also the rise in a way of a, a civil society making itself um, felt politically, and how you argue uh, in some ways that Pakatan Harapan managed to harness that uh, to victory. But was it always really like this very fragile coalition that was always threatening to implode even from day two of the win in 2018? What we saw, there was a long-term trend since 2008. Uh, the 2008 trend was that in 2008, Pakatan won 47% of popular votes. In 2013, Pakatan won 51% of popular votes. And in 2018, in a three-way fight, Pakatan won 48% of the popular vote. What I'm trying to say is that they, the long-term trend is that there was already a sizable middle ground, and that middle ground will be there to stay. But in 2018, we were able to cross the line, especially we were able to cross, cross the line in a three-way fight uh, together with PASS playing the spoiler role was mainly because there was a grand coalition, a grand coalition between the original Pakatan party of DAP, uh, PKR, and Amana, with uh, the forces aligned to Dr. Mahate in the form of Bersatu. Now, we were able to win because we crossed the line uh, with the help of uh, Bersatu. But when it comes to governing, there were two contradictions. One, it is between Dr. Mahate and Anwar the mistrust between them and the forces aligned to them. Number two, there were racial sentiments uh, between the supporters of the DAP and the supporters of Bersatu. And it was manipulated. Both of them were manipulated to create a situation where everything was almost defined in racial terms. So I wrote this a year ago. Oh, actually, I, I thought since October 2018, just barely four months after election, UMNO and PASS had already decided to use racial sentiment, to mobilize racial sentiment in order to burn the house down. And I wrote a year ago in March that this government would not be a one-term government. The Pakatan government would either be a half-term government or to be a government more than one term. My reasoning was very simple. The way PAS and AMNO were pushing, they were pushing Malay anger on the Malay front and with their allies and friends, they were pushing non-Malay angles on the non-Malay front. The whole idea is to break Pakatan by playing on the mistrust between Dr. Mahathir and Anwar, and also the fragile ethnic relationship that actually uh, define the supporters of DAP and the supporters of Persatu. By playing these two sentiments, the purpose was to burn the house down 
so that so that they can take over. And that's what happened. You talk about this, uh, obviously, the Mahate and Anwar um, saga, the, the drama that we've all sort of lived in or the nightmare, depending on who you ask, for the last uh, 20 years. But obviously, you, you, you have been in Mahate's basically war room and been in his kitchen cabinet and then became a deputy minister in his government. How critical was it that Mahate had to play this role to forge this type of consensus? And I mean, clearly many people also now blame him for bringing down the government. If you look at what happened over the last year or so, the public sentiment on the non-Malay front was that it was Mahate that controls the entire government that the DAP is only party that is silenced by Dr. Mahathir and kowtowing to Dr. Mahathir. On the Malay front, there was this understanding or this uh, common narrative that was being pushed, which is the, the government is controlled by the DAP and controlled by Lim Guan Eng. Both are not true. It is a coalition government. It is a grand coalition government. Because of the nature of being a grand coalition government of formerly uh, impossible allies or former rivals, it makes consensus building a lot harder. And while consensus building was hard, we had a free media and we were trying to build a democracy. We're trying to sail the boat while building the boat of democracy and eventually uh, we failed. So I, I felt that perhaps the, the failure of uh, our government is that they did not build this consensus that we were actually in a democratic transition. The most tran important transition was not the one between Mahathe and Anwar, but the most important transition was uh, we, are, we were transiting from an authoritarian state to a democracy, and we were not able to build that consensus. And that democratic transition narrative uh, was lacking not only in the government, but also among civil society, uh, among the public. And I think that is something that we all uh, have to learn from, uh, both from the Pakatan side, but also the wider society who wants to see Malaysia as a democracy. Tricia, could you help uh, explain to us how you see these events? I can. I think the subject of the centralization of the federal government has been something that people who have worked within state government have been talking about for such a long time. And it's not really a new subject, but I think what's happened recently in the, the research uh, unfolding of uh, political events really just shows up how fragile and how centralized and how deeply politicized federal state relations is. So this is precisely when you see the failure of or the breaking down of, of institutions and systems and structures um, not performing as they should be. So uh, just in short to recap the research that has been uh, going on for a long time now about centralization in Malaysia. Uh, essentially, Malaysia is a federation. Uh, we were set up as a federation, but through the years since independence to present time, uh, the BN federal government then really destroy, I suppose, the, the design and the, the spirit of federalism that uh, Malaysia was set up as. So over the period of the 40 to 50 years, essentially many things were either centralized, taken over by the federal government through the use of the constitution, uh, other legal forces, other operational means as well. And what that means is that whenever the opposition had taken over state governments, um, the federal government had within its control 
to overstep its boundaries, to make decisions on behalf of the state governments. Even essential services were also taken away from state control back to federal government. So just you know, two examples that I can cite off the top of my head are uh, water services as well as waste management. And you would think of these as things that the local government should actually control, but the constitution was actually changed to take these two things out from state government control and back to federal government control. Now, fast forward to, to present day, the fragility means that the decision-making of how resources are distributed and allocated to the state, that will be immediately affected. So the federal government now takes control and because there is no strict formula as to how resources should be distributed down to the states, there are a few exceptional grants based on, say, the population size and so on. But otherwise, many, many of them are actually uh, very arbitrary. They have been shown to be heavily influenced by politics. And I think that is precisely what you're going to see happening today uh, with the, I suppose, the return of the, the BN government, uh, just in a different form. And some of the things that will be quite worrisome are, number one, again, how uh, the budget is formed, how re resources are dispersed. Number two, how specific policy decision-making processes will be made. Um, as we already see in the last few days itself, the meeting that Mohidin as Prime Minister chaired with the COVID-19 situation excluded the chief ministers and the military bursars of the five um, opposition states, four of which were the Pakatan Harapan and one uh, in the form of the Warisan government in Sabah. And this you know, really should not be the case. This completely typifies the kind of system breakdown and failures that have been practiced by the federal government. And I suppose finally the question is, uh, what, what are the impacts upon the everyday folk? Uh, people may not realize it, but the, the fact that resources and decision-making is politicized by the center, that actually influences us because we are recipients um, of these public policy decisions made by federal, state and local governments. It's good that you brought that up. I mean, because obviously the COVID-19 emergency may fundamentally undermine, in a way, the, the nature of what good governance can be or should be. And I was just curious to extrapolate a bit from what you've just raised, Tricia. In your experience, uh, uh, Chintong and also Clive and Ross, are we sort of like finding this gravest threat in many ways to the economic uh, sustainability of Malaysia now subject to a problematic federal leadership where too much power has been centralized and in a way abused over decades, as Tricia has suggested? Of course, the Perikatan government is going to face a lot of challenges. It is early days to see how they will respond to the crisis. Uh, so far, I think uh, they have not been too coordinated, perhaps partly because they are new in, in their job. Uh, but I think uh, over the next weeks to come, uh, we will see major changes and they, they will have to live up to the expectation because the government doesn't have legitimacy. If the government doesn't have political legitimacy, it will have to perform in time of crisis in order to, uh, to earn uh, whatever they, they need uh, from, from the population uh, to survive uh, politically. And not only to survive politically, I think the challenges that is going to face us will be serious we will be faced with the issue of uh, hospital capacity. What will we do? Are we prepared for reopening uh, after, after 31st of March? What will happen to the economy? 
uh, what will happen to the global economy and what will happen to Malaysian workers. I think these are the issues that we will have to rethink. And it's not just to rethink from the point of the government, but also rethink as a society. We have been too dependent on foreign workers. And many Malaysians are working as foreign workers in Singapore. I mean, it's a problem when it comes to crisis like this. Our economy has been too dependent on low wage as a way to uh, survive, and we have been too dependent on export. Uh, what do we do to all this uh, after the crisis? That would be a challenge. Clive, all of this seems to suggest, however, that it, to put it, you know, use uh, Chin Tong's words, does this Katuanan Melayu project really going to survive if uh, the whole place burns down? Look, if the whole place burns down, that's habis uh, cerita, that's the end of it, and there'll be, we'll be in a completely different game if there is any game at all. But let me just say, I agree with what Trish said about this whole top-heavy, centrally dominated federalism and its complications. You have all this assertion of sultan's rights and state rights at the symbolic level, but then you have this coercive movement from the beginning, but from the centre. But let me say this is nothing new. All those issues were the precise issues that everybody was getting very upset about in Kelantan in the late 1960s at the inability of Kelantan to get proper funding from the federal government and all that. Now, going on to, I think, quite clearly, to take the next step that you've mentioned, with the CO19 thing, um, this is an occasion that really needs strong federal government, but the possibilities of strong federal government, I think, have been destroyed already. So I think the core issue is the issue of legitimacy. This new government, I don't see where its legitimacy comes from. The old Barisan national government collapsed because it lost its legitimacy. It destroyed its own legitimacy through ensuring its own re-election through a rorted electoral system. And in between, we had the Pakatan Harapan government, which again lost its legitimacy. Maybe Ross could jump in and speak a bit about this. Yeah, sure. The, big the, problem. The point he was making there, and I think I think it's very interesting to think about what is Mahathir's legacy. I mean, there was so much thought around this in 2018. There was so much discussion around reconciliation, around the belief that Anwar and Mahathir had mended bridges and that Mahathir was going to leave a legacy for Malaysia of a transition to democracy. And, you know, civil society was pushing this as, as much as anyone else, in fact, pushing it hardest. And even in the early stages of the Pakatan Harapan government, a lot of civil society members were, in fact, more concerned about Anwar than they were about Mahathir in terms of who might be uh, restricting the democratic transition. And then what have we seen in recent months? Well, we've seen on, on two fronts, really, that Mahathir's overall inability to name a succession date for Anwar meant that he continued to play off these factions against one another, which ultimately brought down the government. But also the, the general lack of reforms that he was prepared to undertake. And uh, he did have a choice in these matters. He did have a choice. He could have brought Anwar into the cabinet. He could have chosen a reasonable succession date, but he chose not to. And he could have spent more 
of his time uh, reforming draconian laws, but instead he spent most of his time maneuvering over his succession and reiterating his support for Malay rights. So at the end of this, it's worth reflecting on what a a legacy's Mahathir 2.0, as people like to call it, left for Malaysia. And in fact, it's not the political operator, it's not the great Dalang, the great puppeteer or uh, the great political operator that we, we thought he might be in those, those moments where the king and parties were moving on those 22nd to 29th of February. In fact, what we saw was a politician who made a number of fatal mistakes, including standing down as prime minister which ultimately led to a, a Muyidin government. And so we will now have to, I think, reflect on this and, and say that he was not this great political operator. And in fact, his second term of, of leadership was for the most part a failure. It seems like a terrible thing to leave behind. Uh, it was interesting, Tricia, in your daily recording of that great torrid week of a saga, was this like some accident waiting to happen? I mean, were you surprised at what ended up happening? And after that, I'd obviously love to hear from Chin Tong, perhaps to get an inside view of whether this really was an accident waiting to happen. Um, I think the listeners would prefer to hear the insider's view on the matter. I mean, I was just a, a very interested observer from the outside. And uh, yes, I hope that uh, the recordings that I made uh, were useful for, for any interested public. Um, no, I think that at least from someone who was not within the system, within the operations itself, um, even from the outside, uh, we all could tell that there were rumblings of dissatisfaction, there were elite fractures taking place, not just uh, within PKR, although PKR's fractures, of course, turned out to be the most important in terms of the coalition uh, falling apart. But many of these also, and for those who perhaps were not aware of the history within PKR, I mean, these things had already taken place from years ago. So you already had the inkling of certain cracks taking place. And as somebody who studies state politics, uh, looking at what happened within the Selangor government itself, I think anyone who understood what happened from 2013, as far back as that, uh, and also who's looking at state politics would recall that many of these relationships had already begun to uh, perhaps not, not fall apart drastically, but um, a lot of the tensions were starting to build up from way back already. And then, of course, when Bersatu came in to form Pakatan Harapan, I think there was mostly uh, some people were, were critical of the role that Mahathir would, uh, would now play as being the leader, recalling what he had done in the past. But I think for many others, they celebrated his return as a, a way in which the coalition was able to sweep into power and sweep into power it did. Um, but the reason I, I bring up the, the coalition politics is because I think when Bersatu came into the coalition, one remembers that it had not the, the experience of working together in coalition as the other three parties had had over a period of close to a decade. So you had already, you know, PKR, DAP, of course, at the time passed, but then you're talking about um, Amana, who had a very close working relationship at the state government level. And, and not just at the state level, you're talking about leadership positions that had been provided to them all the way from within local council, demonstrating protests on the streets as well. I think that probably played a crucial role in coalescing, in providing this cohesive coalition at the bottom levels as well, you know, so your Ketua Kampong, your community formation, and all these experiences 
you know, were not experiences that were shared by this entry of a new party altogether uh, in Versatu. And yes, while they rode into power uh, collectively on this strong victory with the return of Mahathir, I think probably what happened was that internally and also those who were perhaps not so observant externally could not have foreseen the way that some of us probably had the advantage of the fact that the cooperation was not deep enough, long enough, that when cracks started to show in the system, it would you know, so easily fall apart as it did. And I think probably a lot of it has to do with the, the lack of trust. Uh, I think that has already been said by, by some of the, the commentators. And so the, the lack of trust within the parties, within the coalition between parties, uh, probably had a lot to do with the, the way in which things crumbled so quickly. But uh, again, as I said, I think uh, Chin Tong would have a better view on, on this. <laughs> yes, I'd like to hear from Chin Tong. I mean, how did, how did it end up like this? Because we sort of knew, of course, that the problem, the rivalry of the deeply split biggest party in this coalition, PKR, led by Anwar Ibrahim, was split for a while now. And yet we had this tension also with an old, you know, 90-something leader who had his own ways of doing things. I mean, you've worked very closely uh, with Dr. Mahate, but also trying to get this government going. You must have had some idea that it might fall apart. You said that you, ex you thought it might have turned out to be a half term. Why, why is that? I think Tricia provided the context. Perhaps it all started in 2013 and immediately after the 2013 election, Anwar and Asmin uh, became estranged and that propelled the Kajang move uh, in order for Anwar to exert some control over his party through the Selangor government. But uh, he, his uh, attempt was stopped by, by the court, by everyone else. And eventually, in a very long-drawn process, Asmin became the Menteri Besar in September 2014. And in 2015, there was a major, major break that happened. That was the breakup of PASS. Uh, PASS moderates were sacked from the party and or was actually uh, uh, I mean, forced to leave the party. And at the same time, it forced the break of uh, Pakatan Rakyat. Now, we have to go back to remember what was in the minds of Najib at that time. Najib knew that he had no political legitimacy and his political stock was actually uh, declining. But he was behind the scene trying to deprive Pakatan of his leadership. So Anwar was sent to jail on 10 of February 2015, and PASS eventually became outside of the Pakatan framework in order so that there's no Malay support for Pakatan Harapan. Now, the leadership of uh, Mahathir was important in the 2018 election because he was very certain that there was no need to work with PAS uh, in order to win because PAS was already considered as part of Najib's calculation. So that role was important. But I think to sum it up, uh, what we are facing is because there were four prime ministerial candidates. Uh, we have Mahati, Taswi Moyodin, Anwar, and Asmin Ali. I mean, what had eventually happened was because there were four prime ministerial candidates or four prime ministerial uh, aspirants and it ended up in this crisis. Now, in 2017, Pakatan made a decision against Asmin's wish because at that point of time, there was an attempt to put together a Mayudin-Asmin-Ali pair. So in and around 
December 2016 to about mid-year of 2017, there was this attempt to put together a Mayudin-Asmin pair. But that pairing will deprive Anwar the possibility of coming back. That was resisted by Anwar's faction and also not agreeable by other Pakatan parties because Asmin's approach at that time was to work with PAS and not to break with PAS. So because of all this combination, eventually, Tansri Mohidin decided not to seek that position because Mahathir's uh, stock was rising. Mahathir was very popular. I remember having a chat with Ross uh, in Jakarta in April 2017, talking about the possibility of a Mahathir premiership. And uh, I think he was stunned at the time. Uh, I think very few people thought it was possible. But the reason why there was a Mahathir-Anwar combo, to a large extent, was to actually reject a Moedin-Asmin combo. So we are now seeing that the Moedin-Asmin combo coming back uh, into, into play because of the failure to execute a Mahathir-Anwar combo, a Mahathir-Anwar uh, leadership. Now, this is what we have seen over, over the last two years. But immediately after election, AMNO was at a loss. AMNO did not know how to proceed. And by October, when the anger against the international uh, ISAT, uh, what they call the uh, agreement, from then onwards, AMNO found a way to burn the house down. And there were three characters, uh, Asmin Ali, Hishamuddin Hussein, and uh, Hamza Zainuddin, who is the new Home Minister. They were key characters in trying to put together a coalition by pushing this idea that there's no such need for DAP to be there. So by October 2019, there was already a clear attempt to sack the DAP from the coalition. And the problem with DAP was because DAP forms the quorum for Anwar, and, and therefore there is a need to sack the DAP. At that point of time, it was to sack the DAP and replace DAP with Hisham Mudin's faction, which he claims has between 17 to 22 MPs and also PAS, which has 18 MPs. By sacking DAP and bringing in Hisham factions and PAS, they will have around the same number, 40 versus 42. But that was exposed and that did not go well and Mahathi rejected it, so it didn't happen. But when after the Tanjung PIPA election, I think Tan Sri Muhyiddin joined the effort by around January 2020 and eventually led to the coup on, uh, in late February. And I suppose that, that makes the, this issue, you know, seem like so much about, in a way, the relationships that were forged in the so-called struggle, right? Uh, over so many years, that made it more resilient. And as Trisha had pointed out, Brasatu coming in late, in a way, upset the whole dynamic of it. Yet, without having Mahate leading that coalition, you would not have got over the line, right? And so that, that becomes this, uh, I guess, paradox or conundrum. I, I was just curious, you know, one thing that uh, Ross has done a lot of research about and uh, had been writing the series and also, obviously, in our book, uh, Rebirth, as well, was the critical part in many ways that the G14 elections had with um, a particular type of social media, online media, in terms of crafting or shaping that narrative. 
I, I'm just wondering whether you could help expand that a bit, Ross, in terms of the type of conversation that has enabled this type of coalition to have worked and maybe how fragile it ended up being. Well, I think the original point Chintong made was, and many others have made, was that this was a was in many ways a, a protest vote. I mean, I, I also remember hearing Jomo speak in uh, Sydney in July 2018, so not long after the election, and he was trying to remind everyone that they should not be complacent, particularly those in government and those who, who voted for Pakatan Harapan, because he said that this was a anti-Najib vote, anti-Amno leadership vote. And um, that was, of course, driven in a lot of ways by the 1MDB crisis, uh, 1MDB corruption case, and the, the crisis which engulfed Najib's leadership. So traveling around through uh, northern Malaysia in, in areas in Kedah and uh, Langkawi for uh, the campaign, you know, when, you when I talked to people throughout that time, they would tell me that they think Najib is corrupt and they read about it uh, on Facebook or on WhatsApp. And that's a big part of how they were, were learning about the corruption case. I remember being in, in Kedah in the UMNO headquarters HQ there, and, and they were adamant that they were going to win the election, including on Langkawi. And uh, they, were, they were completely oblivious to what a lot of these online messages were saying, or at least they knew they were there, but they didn't think they would have a huge impact when it came down to the election day. So, you know, with that in mind, um, I think it is important to think about the, the, the democratic project that Chintong talked about and others have talked about in terms of to what extent was this a democratic transition? And that's sort of what Clive was talking about a bit before, about looking at new phases of Malaysian politics. And I think having just reviewed uh, one of the books from ICES, um, The Fall of Barisan Nasional, they use the term in that introduction, in Malaysia is now a complicated democracy. And so that's a really interesting thing to think about and the way in which new technologies play a part in that, but also the way in which Malaysia has gone from being a standard textbook electoral authoritarian regime or semi-democracy to now a very complicated democracy. And perhaps that 2018 mark was the turning point. And this new regime change is no exception. We're not going back to semi-democracy and Malaysia is going to remain a complicated democracy for some time. And we're going to see elite factions and elite politics and party manoeuvring for the next little while. And so in some ways, that's reason for hope. Probably doesn't help too much during a COVID-19 crisis, but it is hopeful when we think about a regime change. Mm. I think that so much of it now is partly determined by this new demographic that partly fueled uh, the civil society that Clive refers to as playing a, an instrumental role in bringing 2018's election result about. And I think it also speaks to what Tricia was talking about in terms of the federal state balance that now occurs in terms of where power resides, but also what uh, Chintong has been writing about and arguing over the demographic change and the predominantly urban type of politics, whether that type of politics is very different. Chintong, could you speak a bit about, say, as an as a on-the-ground practitioner of it, how has that changed, for instance, from when you first got involved way back 20 years ago at the outset of Reformasi? I think that, that was a start, but um, I, I like uh, Ross's point that uh, actually the last election was a protest vote and it cuts both ways. 
many people are, are so worried that uh, the combination of past and UMNO will actually combine the, the words of past and UMNO and eventually they will sweep away all the, what they call, swing seats, about 30 over swing seats uh, that Pakatan won in the last election that allows Pakatan to uh, win power. My point is like this, in the last election, those who have voted for Pakatan, most of them did not vote for Pakatan. They voted against uh, Najib and Gosmar. Likewise, those who have voted for PAS, they did not vote for PAS. They voted against Najib and Gosmar. So the votes that PAS collected was actually the votes that was against Abno. So I don't think Abno is gaining ground. And the current uh, new coalition, Perikatan, is not going to be a stable coalition because uh, Bersatu, Abno, and PAS are competing on the same electoral ground with very similar ideological uh, setting. It is not an electoral uh, coalition. It is a, a coalition to facilitate a coup. And, and that is the fundamental problem that our opponent will face. But on our side, on Pakatan side, uh, we will have to reconnect with everyone. Uh, there must be this, uh, this belief that we have to continue the democratic project and we must gather everyone in order to convince them that uh, there is a need to win 140 seats in the coming election. Because there is this, uh, this idea among many that uh, there's no point to vote because uh, whatever we, we did in the election, it may not last long. But there must be this belief and uh, there must be uh, this idea that together we can win 140 seats and with 140 seats then we can cement a democracy uh, we can have a long-lasting democratic transition uh, but that will require Pakatan to take the middle ground in terms of ethnic politics but also require Pakatan to build a stronger policy framework especially driving this cost to the questions of jobs pay education healthcare, public transport housing tax and more and i think uh, healthcare will be very important uh, in the months and years to come uh, with the background of uh, covid-19 i was thinking uh, trisha should in a way have the last word on this and being in kl as a, a keen observer of where does this good governance good government power lie now and is it as fragile as um, Chintong suggests about this Perikatan national government? Thanks, Ken, for letting the lady have the last word, <laughs> as it were. I had two thoughts about what uh, both Ross and Chintong have been saying about democratic transition. And I think even within the academic circle, there hasn't been a consensus yet that Malaysia, despite the change in federal government in May 2018, uh, in fact, uh, did go through a democratic transition. I think there was, there was a debate um, as to whether that happened. The reason for this disagreement was that uh, despite there being that change, one of the big questions that went unanswered yet was this issue of a deep state, uh, which many, you know, even ministers had been talking about. And I think we had seen the fleshing out of that uh, even throughout Pakatan Harapan. So I think that probably needs a lot more unpacking as to whether the civil service in the administration, were they still holding on to the kinds of authoritarian civil liberties dampening approach, perhaps not aligned very much with the, their, their political leaders. 
So what does democratic transition also mean? I mean, you have a bureaucracy that's still very much the same. And who are they answerable to? And I think that there were some efforts that the PH administration was trying to do in terms of reforming the civil service. And then, of course, uh, things went bust. The other issue that I thought worth unpacking as we talk about democratic transition or consolidation in the future, definitely not now, is an issue that I know, again, there's disagreement here as to, as to whether patronage lines still continue to exist. I think there's a consensus that this patronage continues to exist within the rural areas, but I think uh, even Chintong and I have a slight disagreement as to whether these patronage lines exist in the urban areas. Our political economy has not changed very much, and that political economy was grown, uh, as it were, by AMNO. And I don't think PH had enough time to unpack it, to delink the credit claiming that AMNO had for so long used to maintain its powers uh, within the, the rural as well as the urban. So I think I would say that within the urban areas, there is that struggle still to claim credit for ethnic provision of services and development. I think we disagree there. So I mean, those are the two things that I would talk about if we talk about um, democratic transition. As to answering your question about where do we go in terms of governance and policy reforms, uh, I, I would not be convinced that the current Perikatan National will have a strong governance plan ahead. For one, they don't have any election manifesto that anyone else can hold them to. Mohidin has said something on transparency and anti-corruption in his first inaugural speech, but I really don't see that uh, even if he personally has the intention of doing that, whether his coalition partners and the people within his fold will have that uh, stamina or intention to roll out any sort of governance regime. And I think this is really the, the disappointment of all voters or many voters in Malaysia uh, having seen what took place within that fatal last week of February to the 1st of March. I think this is the, the biggest flaw, uh, the biggest thing that we, we, we are disappointed by. And I'm not sure what will happen next, but definitely when COVID-19 dies down a little bit, we also don't know how long that will be. I think the two foremost issues that we must try to keep the government accountable to uh, and accountable on would be, number one, what are the kinds of good governance measures that they're going to uh, put in place? And number two as well, how are they going to restore the economy? Thanks a lot, Tricia, for uh, summing that up very nicely. And thanks to all of you, actually, for participating in this uh, rejigging of what was supposed to be a live event. But uh, I suppose, like the COVID-19 crisis that has struck this particular discussion of ours, the new government in Malaysia, too, might fall over very badly thanks to this. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. For more podcasts like this, look up Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at soundcloud.com.